When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. My guest in this episode uh, is one of the state's longest-serving police commissioners. He uh, handed, uh, handed back the uniform uh, a couple of years ago, uh, but uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Carlo Callahan. Hello, Tim. Hello, or should I say Dr... Carl, you can, you you, you're another Dr. Carl. I am a Dr. Carl, yeah, but, <laughs> but I very rarely use that, that title. People do some, sometimes, but mostly I don't bother yeah. with it too much. Well, I'll get to that in a moment yeah. because um, I wasn't aware that, uh, that you were a PhD, so mm. there you go. Um, but look, let's go right back to the, to the start. Uh, born in the UK, yes, and you yep, came out yep. here as a, as a teenager, uh, about 14? Yeah, I was 14. You, you no, moved. 1970, so you can work out my age on that, so. A 10-pound pom then at the 10 time? 10-pound pom, yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. You're oh, part of that wave. I think I was free. I think it was only the adults that paid. Yeah. It went free. Yeah. Back in the good old days of international travel. You got me for nothing. <laughs> 14 years, though, you spent uh, in, in the UK yep. growing up. So, you know, you had time to, to form friendships and memories and, and a connection uh, to the place. What was it like being ripped away from that at the age of 14? It was horrible. I, I remember uh, being told we were going to Australia without much discussion. My parents didn't uh, talk to us about that. They said, we're going. Mm. And I think we were given about three months notice. And I was, uh, you know, I was a bit nonplussed about it because I was at school. I was in third year high school uh, at the time. You know, I was doing quite well. You know, you have friends, girlfriends, girl, girl interests and that sort of thing. And I thought, why do I want to go there? Mm. And because um, I was a little bit older than my siblings, I pushed back a bit on that. But, mm. uh, you know, <laughs> in the end, you have to go. I couldn't be left behind. No. W- what was life like uh, in, in England? Where were you in England? Well, I lived starters? in North London yeah. uh, in a place, Wembley, where Wembley Stadium is actually, yep. quite close to there. And, uh, you know, we were a working class family from uh, Irish Catholic Irish background. Um, and it was okay. I loved it. I loved living there. I loved being there. Uh, I remember only good times. I can't remember much in the way of bad times now. Thinking back, uh, and I still I still remember it very fondly. And I still got yeah. a, I've still got a tie to it. Yes, I go back there and visit sometimes. Yeah, because mm. as I say, fourteen. You know, you have got time to sure. to form a bond with the place. Do you yeah. still feel a pull back there? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Australia. I love Perth, and I've been living here, as you know, for a long, long time now since mm. nineteen seventy. But I still have this connection to the UK and still have this connection to London mm. because as a 14-year-old, I used to travel quite widely. In those days, you could. You know, you'd buy a sort of a bus pass mm. and travel all over London on a Saturday with your mates and visit all the places. Um, and so I'm very familiar with it and I, I go back often. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, what prompted the family move out here? 
I think like uh, most people thinking would get a better life, um, you know, l- probably better weather yep. <laughs> and uh, and more certainty of employment. Uh, I think in the early 1970s at least, the economy in the UK didn't look all that brilliant and uh, I think it was just an economic decision mm. in the end. Extended family already here or did no. they come out? It was just, just no. you guys? That we were pioneers. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother followed, that's my mother's mother, and a couple of other people in the family followed some years later, but mm. we were pioneers. And in those days, I think you could return after two years if it didn't suit you without having to pay any money. But uh, mm. I remember mum and dad always saying, we're never coming back to or never going back to the UK. So it was sort of a final mm. separation for us. Mm. So I didn't actually go back from 1970. The first time I went back was 1995. Wow. Long time, yeah. Yeah, long time. Yeah. And, and what were your first memories uh, of coming to, to Perth? Um, well, we, we were settled in a small unit in South Perth because we were sponsored by a land company called Landall Holdings. No, I don't think they exist anymore. And they, I think the idea of that was they were going to sell you a house, so they started mm. to try to sell a house. Um, but I think the, the um, what I remember most is going to school and realising how different the curriculum was and you know how I didn't know much about it. The kids were good and yep. it was very friendly and they were all very welcoming, but the curriculum was completely confusing to me because we covered nothing uh, in yeah. the UK that they were covering here. Yeah. Yeah, that was... A, it was a ch- and, and the other thing is, because I, I got there for year nine, but in year 10 in those days, you had to do the junior certificate. And I'd only done three months of year nine, and they were going to test me on eight, nine, and 10. So mm. I virtually had to learn all of the year eight and year nine stuff on my own at home to be able to complete the junior certificate at the end of what was then third year, or is now called year 10. Yeah. So, you know, it's quite academically challenging to try and catch up with all that material. Yeah. And, and I noticed you, uh, you went to... Calamunda yeah. Senior High School. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's my old stomping ground. Not that particular high school, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. growing up in the hills, yeah. it, you can be somewhat separated and disconnected, can't you, from the you know other parts of the metro area? I can just imagine the culture shock from North London to yeah. to the hills yeah. of Perth. Yeah, 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 it's a pretty extreme change. Yeah, to the middle of you know London where there's stuff going on all the time. Yeah, Calamunda, which is even today is quite a village. You know, it is. Um, but th- then it was a real village, and it was a long bus ride into town. Yeah, and even town wasn't comparable to the sorts of places I've been used to. But they didn't yeah. worry me too much. I mean. I made friends pretty quickly and got into other things, you know, the things you would do in Perth, like fishing and mm. snorkeling and all those sorts of things. So I just filled in my time with other things. Yeah. I remember reading um, when you finished up your time with WA Police that you, you you described yourself or perhaps the article described you perhaps as a as an accidental police officer mm. initially, mm. you know, going into the police force yeah. uh, as a teenager yeah, uh, was, was something that, that happened almost by accident. Yeah, I wasn't uh, – I never thought I wanted to – joined the police force. It wasn't one of those lifelong things. I'd always wanted to be a policeman, like people say. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to be, really. And I had a sort of a vague idea that I wanted to be in the Navy at one stage. Right. But um, it was a career guidance counsellor at school who said, look, you know, you need to make a decision because you had to in those days. And there's an open day at the police academy tomorrow. So can you go down there and see if policing interests you? And I went down and... uh, I spoke to a couple of people down there. Mostly I, I was scared of them because I was scared of police officers. And one of them said to me, look, you know, quite frankly, you would make a good police officer. You've got all the requirements. You're a male. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, you're tall and you look like you might be able to handle yourself. Uh, and I was too scared to say no, really. And <laughs> they so, couldn't say that now, could they? No, they can't say that now. But that's, <laughs> that's how it was. You know, you had, that was over the qualifications in yeah. 1973 I'm talking about now. Yeah. And, um, and I got sent all this material and filled it in. Yeah, right. So, there you go. And the next thing, I was uh, drafted in as a police cadet um, 
in December 1973. Yeah. yeah. And the sorts of things you did as a, as a cadet, the, the training programs there, well, um, what, are your, what are your memories of that and how, how different are they now? You start at the bottom of the rung and in those days it was a pretty tough organisation. So making cups of tea was a big, big thing. Um, a lot of clerical work, you know, mm. not much police action because we didn't have any sworn powers until we were mm. 19 in those days and I was 17 when I joined. So um, it was a lot of clerical work support. It was okay. It was, you know, I had a job and uh, I liked the people I worked with, but it really was starting at the bottom rung of yeah. an organisation. Yeah. Having yeah. said that, you graduated as ducks of your yeah, academy I did. class yeah. Yeah, uh, I did. In, in 1976. Yeah. Obviously, people saw something in you then that uh, that sent you on your way. Yeah, I think what they were looking for uh, for the ducks was a, a package which wasn't just an academic success, but also endeavour, so trying yeah. hard and doing those sorts of things. So it all mixed together. In fact, the, the guy who came second was only 0.4 of a percent behind me in the end. Lovely, lovely man. And uh, I knew him for many years, worked uh, in, in crime. But, uh, you know, it was, it was such a close-run race, and I didn't even you – know, I wasn't thinking mm. about it at the time. But at the end, they said, mm. yeah, look, you come up at the, at the top of the organisation, at the top of the, the mm. um, ca- academy. What did your, your family think of your, uh, your foray into policing? Was it was law enforcement or policing in the, in the family at all? No, they were all working-class um, labourers and uh, – well, my dad was an electrician, so he didn't have any contact with police either. I think they were very supportive of it mm. because they saw it as a secure job. And I think in those days, you wanted your kids to have a secure job for life. You know, mm. these days, work environment's different. And so people don't tend to have a job for, and I was in the police force for 43 years, so mm. they don't t- tend to have a job for that long. <laughs> you know, it's a long time in working for one paymaster. 43 years, it is a long time, yeah. especially in this day and age. Oh, People absolutely. chop and change all the time, but I suppose it's such a big organisation, you can kind of drift yeah. in and out of different yes. areas and aspects of, of policing, can't you? Yeah, you can. Um, reflecting on it now, though, I suppose you've had, what, a couple of years, give or take? Yeah, sure. uh, since you uh, yeah. Since you finished up in uniform um, and perhaps reflecting on those early years, could you have possibly foreseen back then that you would spend that long? As part of a, of, of a police force, if not WA police, then, you know, just a, a police outfit somewhere. Did you know then that that was going to be your life? Um, well, I never contemplated that I was ever going to leave. You know, once I got the job, it was sort of a cultural thing that you stayed with it. And a lot, and a lot of police officers do and did yep. stay for that many years. It's a sort of a, it's a service type organisation, so it gets into your blood. Mm. You know, I think there's a couple of steps along the way much later, after I've been in the job for 20 years, where... I might have asked some questions about whether I wanted to do that anymore. Mm. But, you know, in the end, it, it always came back to the fact that I, you know, I liked doing what I was doing. And to be quite honest, it paid relatively well. Mm. Mm. Do you miss it? Not now, no. no. No, I don't miss it because I've always had so many things going on in my life and I never let the grass grow under my feet. So yeah. I moved on pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I know you've had some outside interests uh, as well, including... Yeah. Uh, your musical (laughs) interests as well, which I'm keen to ask you about. Uh, We need to head to a break, though. Carlo Callahan is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, We are featuring the inspiring story of our former police commissioner, Carl O'Callaghan. Carl, can I ask, you know, it, it is a very public role it's yeah. a very prominent role mm. in the community and one that you held uh, for 13 years yeah. a couple of years now have have passed um 
do people still come up to you and, and call you commissioner or ask you about people matters to do with me, police? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, people recognise me all the time because, um, for better or for worse, I cultivated a fairly high profile. Yeah. Um, a lot of that was about trying to sell the message of police and getting the public to think a little bit differently about mm. crime and that sort of thing. But it's left me a legacy of being quite recognisable. And if mm. people don't come up and say, you know, hello, they look at you and think, I know that person from mm. somewhere, you know. Mm. And, and often I've spoken to someone for 10 minutes and they say, oh, I know you from somewhere, you know, are you in the media or something like that? Yeah. The answer that's probably yes, but, <laughs> they, but they probably know me from, uh, you know, my time as police commissioner. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't had anyone come up and, you know, blast you for no, look, locking I mean, them up or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, look, 99% of everyone that comes up, they're very nice and they yeah. talk about, you know, they want to either talk about being a police commissioner or doing other things, but they're, yeah. they're very good, you know. And it's usually in the supermarket when I'm buying my cornflakes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, nature of the job, I imagine, you know, you go and spend time in sometimes remote places, mm. sometimes unpleasant places yeah. um, and, and different areas yeah. within the police force. What are the sort of standout periods of your career for you that were eye-opening or just they've stayed with you for some reason? Well, um, I started my career very not long after I graduated. I went to Port Hedland for a while. Yep. and um, So we're talking mid to late 70s, Port Hedland. You're talking 1976. And um, it was a town which is totally different then yep. to what it is now. South yep. Hedland was, hadn't been developed. It was what, what I would largely call a single man's working town. Um, a lot of alcohol problems, a lot of social problems problems with uh, Indigenous people up there as well. And uh, a lot of the work we did was just trying to clean the mess up that those those problems create. Yeah. And I found that really challenging because um, that was all we seemed to be doing in Port Hedland in those days. And I, I would, when I think back on it, I didn't enjoy that work particularly. Uh, when I came back to Perth, I went to the traffic branch and ended up at some stage doing quite a lot of crash inquiry work. Yeah. And, of course, when you do crash inquiry work, you're coming into contact with fatal traffic crashes, having to deal with grief and families in crisis. And so, you know, I wouldn't say it's a low point, but it certainly is a um, something that stays with you all your life. And I can often remember all of those crash scenes and I can remember, you know, walking around them and marking them and interviewing people yeah. and the names of the people that died, you know. Yeah. Mm. You must have an extraordinary um, perception of, of, of Perth, for instance, when you're driving around knowing, you know, such and such happened on that corner yeah. and you remember yeah. another landmark where something horrific might have happened yeah. there. Yeah, I do. Um, it's a lot to carry around in your own head, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I often you know, drive through an intersection and say, oh, look, I remember being here in 1978 and do, doing this particular job here. You know, It never goes away and you can remember a lot about it. Yep. Mm. Uh, up as well? You spent yeah, some time in Manjimup? Yeah, Yeah, I went down there uh, initially in traffic and then changed over to general duties and uh, I loved it. You know, made a lot of good friends down there. Yep. Enjoyed country policing because you get a lot of time to work with the community. And mm. like get, in Perth, particularly these days, you don't often get time to down tools and, and talk to people in the community and spend time with them. You're just yep. running from one job to another. But in a place like Manjimup back in the 1980s, it was a totally different ballgame. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And the wheat belt as well. So you had a good sprinkling of rural yeah, WA, didn't you? Yeah, I spent some time up there. As the, I was sent up there to run the district by the commissioner at the time. Uh, I didn't spend all that long there. It was just under a year, and they pulled me back to run one of the busier districts in the Perth metropolitan area. But I, I love the time I was there. And again, the same thing applies. You know, yeah. you get to meet so many people and work with so many people when you're mm. in the bush. A completely different job, I imagine, if you're it out is. there. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. And the pre- the pressures, you know, still doing serious work. Yeah. But the the moment to moment pressures are a lot different. Yeah. yeah. Um, what prompted you to go back to 
to university and, and, and get a PhD. I, I mentioned that the top, Dr. Carl yeah. Callahan. Tell us about that. Well, I transferred to the police academy as an instructor back in, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was 89. And one of the things that struck me in those days is that there was no qualified instructors, no qualified curriculum writers. And so a lot of things were taught on the basis of experience. So this is mm. how I did it when I was out there. and Or it was taught rote, you know, you've got to read these laws and statutes. And I thought, well, we, we could do better. And I wanted to go and learn a little bit about curriculum work. And that's what I did. I started doing an undergraduate degree in education. All the while holding down yeah, a, was a working, pretty high-ranking yeah. job in the force. Yep. Yeah. I mean, university it can be flexible. So a lot yep. of it you can do by distance ed. or and You couldn't do it online in those days. But, mm. Or you attend evening classes or whatever. Mm. So, But um, I, I then... I went through to do an honours degree and, and uh, passed my honours and then the university said, do you want to do a PhD? And I stupidly said yes, you know, <laughs> but without actually thinking about what the consequences of it were. But, you know, once I start on something, I'm not about to give it up. And, you know, PhD is a pretty tough thing to yeah. do. Uh, but it was good. And that was more about sociology and how police reacted to social change because I was just interested in the way police had dealt with, you know, I went right back to the Vietnam moratoriums and... Uh, yeah protests and a whole range of things, you know, how they dealt with Aboriginal people. We looked at the um, deaths in custody, Royal Commissions and all those sorts of things. Uh, and that, that was the basis of my PhD. How was that viewed by your colleagues going um, and doing something like that? I think they were very suspicious about it. I mean, uh, I know that when I was coming to the close to the job of police commissioner and I applied for it, there was a lot of rumours the colleagues put out to the media that I was just an academic yeah. uh, because, you know, I'd got this, this degree. And, you know, there was a suspicion back in the... 1980s of anyone that was considered to be academic it wasn't necessarily a label that you wanted to wear so um, it didn't always work in my favor mm. Mm. in in doing that were you thinking at then at that point I could reach the top of the pile here and become commissioner and was that was that part of you know well, establishing that path for you I remember having a conversation with um, a senior police officer who uh, eventually reached the rank of deputy commissioner who said look you know you will get to the top of this organization because we like the way you think but he said ultimately um, what you want to aim for is getting your feet under the command table so it's very difficult to say I want to be the police commissioner because there's all sorts of politics around mm, that, mm. as you can imagine but he said if you can get to the command table so the top 12 people in the organisation, then you can influence the policies and the way the organisation runs. And he said, if you get there, you know, you're part of the top 1%. Mm. And so rather than say, I wanted to be the police commissioner, I was trying to aim for a position on that table, which includes commanders and assistant commissioners and directors mm. and a whole range of different people. Yeah. What happens in those in those discussions? What are you actually... Well, what's What sort of, you know, one percenter high-powered conversations <laughs> are you having in there? Well... I mean, they're corporate-type decisions. They're not, they're not operational decisions, so you're not making decisions about a murder inquiry or something like yeah. that. You're making decisions about budget, um, structure, what sort of policies are going to be put in place. You're making yeah. decisions about health and safety, about training and development, a whole range of things like mm. that, which you consider a lot of th a lot of police officers would consider that boring stuff, but it is stuff at the top of the organisation that's got to be done to make yeah. it happen. You know? Yeah. Um, do you remember the conversation that... Uh, that I'm sure just preceded your appointment as as commissioner. I mean, how did it? Just talk us through the uh, the process, the phone calls, the conversations, the emails, whatever um, it was. Well, I think that I, asserted you, know, you in the top job. I applied uh, with a, an 
number of other people. There were there were several people interviewed. I can't remember the details of that. But um, and that was in March two thousand and four. The commissioner's position wasn't announced till June, so there was three months of speculation. You yep. know? and it can be really distracting when you're trying to do a job and yeah. people are talking about this is going to be the next commissioner and that's going to be the next commissioner. But after about three months of deliberations, and I've got no idea what deliberations government went through, I did get a call from the minister's office, who happened to be at the time Michelle Roberts. She's the minister again now, of course. Yep. Um, and was invited up to her office and she well, basically offered me the job. Mm. And we had a conversation about you know, how it might work and that sort of thing. And uh, that was it. You know, mm. but, um, you know, the first person I rang after that was my wife, obviously. Uh, and then you know, I started talking to a lot of other people about it mm. because part of the challenge was then uh, getting ready to go out publicly with the then premier, who was Jeff Gallup, to make a statement about it and um, work out what am I going to say because people are going to say to me, well, what are you going to do? You're the new commissioner. What's your plans? Mm. And I hadn't really had a lot of time to think about that at that yeah. stage. The the intersection between policing and, and, and politics, mm. I mean, um, I'm sure people come up have came up to you, you know, during your time there and probably um, wrongly thought that you guys were responsible for creating policy, mm. you know, and, and, mm. and complained to you about this law or that law yeah. and yeah. Uh, perhaps not of the, uh, of, the, of the understanding, you know, that your job essentially is to enforce the rules, yeah. not to make the rules. Yeah. Um, having said that, you do still have to have a, a working relationship with politics as well. How did, you, how did you find that? Well, I mean, I think it generally went pretty well. I mean, you, you, if you look at my whole time as police commissioner, there were there were moments, you know, in the public domain, in the media, where there were obvious tensions. And yeah. that always happens with police commissioners and, and ministers and government because the commissioner has a certain level of autonomy and government also wants to deliver on some of its election yeah. you know, uh, promises, you know, for argument's sake introducing a particular type of way of doing business or introducing uh, equipment or whatever it is. Yeah. And so sometimes those things intersect. But for the most part, um, I had a really good relationship with all the ministers I worked with. And I and I said this the other day publicly, they not one of them has ever interfered with an operational decision. They yeah. obviously want to know about policy decisions. Mm. If you're going to spend a big chunk of money or you're going to announce something that's going to affect government. Yeah. And the trick really in all of this is to keep people informed about what you're yeah. doing and try not to create too many surprises. Yeah. Do you like politicians? Uh, look, I, I <laughs> I've actually thought about being a politician. I was, so, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I meant so, to, in, in some respects, you pr- you probably had to be a bit of a politician in the broad definition, at least, yeah, in like, your role, yeah? Look, I mean, you know, you, you like some people, you don't like some people. There's some mm. great people in, in, in Parliament that I enjoyed working with, and there's some other people that I don't respect very much. You know? mm. And uh, so that's that's the same in most walks of life. But yep. uh, but for the most part, I've had a pretty good relationship with nearly all politicians. I've had a couple of ding-dong barnies behind the scenes with one or two of them, yep. but never a police minister. Yeah. Mm. All right. We might get into that uh, a little bit more after the break. <laughs> we need to take a, a break, though. This is Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Baron O'Day here on 882 6BR. Back with more soon. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are speaking to the former Police Commissioner Carlo Callahan in this episode. Carl, can I ask you about some of the, the more controversial moments during your yes your thirteen odd years uh, in the top <laughs> job? I suppose the ones that come to mind, yep. um, perhaps the you know the wrongful convictions, um, yep. Andrew Mallard, Jim yep. Gibson, yep. Um, the incident inv- involving uh, Kevin Spratt uh, yep. and the tasering. Yes. 
obviously a lot falls on you. Yeah, absolutely. Because you are the the, the, the one at the top of the tree there. Yeah. Uh, what are your reflections on, on those three incidents that I mentioned? Well, you know, the, the biggest challenge for me as police commissioner when something comes up like that is to try and explain it and make sense of it to the community and to the media because people want to know why things have occurred, why things have gone wrong, what happened here. And often the information is not available at the moment that everyone wants the answer. Mm. So you can imagine that you talk about the, the Spratt issue, that happens, it comes out publicly, and then you know, you've got to get the information together to talk about it. But the bigger challenge is how you maintain public confidence in saying, look, okay, this went wrong, but we're going to do some things to stop these things from happening in the future and, uh, and actually get it done and prove that you can get it done. Because you know, policing relies very much on public confidence. Mm. And when that confidence is eroded by a wrongful conviction or police overreaction, then the police commissioner has to go into leadership mode to try and maintain that public confidence and have a solution for it because that's what they expect. And, and I guess that was what I spent most of my time on when it came to trying to deal with those issues at yeah. a high level. Your relationship with the media, particularly during those times, how would you describe it? Oh, look, it's pretty good. I, I mean, I think the media um, understood the difficulty of it and they understood that they needed to make a story of it and they also understood that I was trying to do the best I could in those circumstances. Now, you know, the media have a right to ask really tough questions and I don't take any offence at that and I have a right to reply honestly and say this is what I think's happened and this is what we're going to do about it. So, mm. you know, there have been testy times when you have um, particular people in the media wanting to have a go mm. but if they didn't, they wouldn't have a job either, you know what I mean? That's, mm. they, they're expected by their editors to ask those questions and and I've got to be prepared to respond to those without holding any grudges. Yeah, because, you know, matters around law and order, crime, um, they always feature prominently in, in commercial media in particular. Of course they do, yeah. And uh, reporters who are sent out to cover those stories have to have a certain hunger. They do. Um, you know, to get yeah. extreme headlines at times. Um, yeah. Did you ever feel like you were unfairly... Uh, tarnished or uh, or probed on 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 matters like that. No, did you I, ever sort of feel like you know, gee, I, I wish I could tell you what I really thought. Well, sometimes you can't say things. You yeah, know, and so for argument's sake, there may be things that uh, can't be said because the information hasn't come to light yet, or because it's suppressed by the court. Mm. You know, so something gets thrown out of court for argument's sake, and people want an immediate explanation as to why you know the police case broke down. It's not always available. If you know it is and it's been suppressed, you can't talk about it. So yep. that's been that's quite difficult. And sometimes the media have the wrong background briefing, and so that's when things get a bit yep. mixed up, you know. Yeah. But it's just the it's the world we live in because you know policing can be quite chaotic. Yes. And and the media also want to have got a twenty four seven news cycle to manage as well. So the whole thing can get a bit mixed up occasionally. Yeah. Can I ask you about, um, you know, some of your personal matters that drifted sure. into yep. your public role as well during your time as a police commissioner? You know, it's, it's no secret that your son was uh, battling a methamphetamine yes. addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, all the while, you know, there were so many headlines about this, this scourge of meth yeah. on the streets. Yeah. How, how difficult was that to, to manage from, you know, from your point of view, having this very public, prominent public role, yeah. uh, but also 
battling that in the home? Um, it was it was very difficult um, because uh, the the things that brought him to public attention, I, I, did, I knew about retrospectively, like one of my assistant commissioners rang and said, do you know this incident in Carlisle, mm. that was the explosion there, mm. is your son Russell? I said, what do you mean? You're like, it's the first thing I'd heard of it. I mm. knew he had a, a drug problem, mm. but I didn't realise up until that point how bad it was, you know, and... Um, um, I, in some respects, I thought initially this is going to be very difficult to deal with, but I think the ability to go out and talk about it actually had the reverse effect in that there were you know, hundreds and hundreds of families out there dealing with it, and all of a sudden they thought, well, this is something that can affect anybody. Mm. Um, here's someone who's talking about it openly because they have personal experience about it, uh, and, and it also enabled me, if I was talking about methamphetamine, to ground it. Mm. So, yes, it's a problem. Police are out there trying to seize it. It's causing a lot of problem with crime. And this is the reason I understand it, because, mm. you know, my son is, is a user of methamphetamine. Obviously, you know, in your role, principally it was, you know, restricting supply, finding the dealers, yeah. trying to put them away, yeah. getting it off the streets, yeah. you know, which is, I suppose, one part of the, yeah. the jigsaw in sure. trying to tackle meth now that uh, you're out of it and, and perhaps you have a, a broader uh, take on it how do you think we're going in tackling that well, particular I, issue i actually had a broader um, a view on it when i was a police commissioner and i've said many many times that one of the things we've been able to do in australia is seize more and more methamphetamine so the, the police have done an amazing job all over australia border protection and they've seized every year the seizures go up but what doesn't change is the usage rate. So if police are being measured on re- reduction of usage rates, then their policy is a failure. Mm. If they're being measured on how much stuff they seize, then their policy has been um, success. But in the end, I think what we want as a community is to see the use and demand for meth decrease. And to do that, you need to, see, to do a lot more than law enforcement because what we've shown is that law enforcement, and even more law enforcement, doesn't actually make a difference to the usage rate. So there's a piece of that equation missing, and I'm not sure we understand what that is. It may be therapy, it may be health intervention, it may be a whole range of things. Mm. But it certainly the answer certainly isn't a government coming to power saying, we're going to be tough on crime and we're going to put more police on this. Yep. Because what you're going to get is a, an expensive process with no, no change in usage rates. I suppose this is where you're coming back to that um, question I asked before about that, that intersection of... of policing and politics because it's an easy sell isn't it for for a government to come in and say we're locking more people up we're prosecuting more people we've got more people in prison we've got more drugs off the street um it's it it, i think to a lot of people who perhaps don't invest in the issue and the complexities around it they just think okay that's a government that i can see is being proactive about this i'm behind this but in the reality which you would see out on the streets people affected by uh, this drug, it's its not as simple as that, is it? Well, you might think this is controversial, but before the last election, state election, I said to the, the incumbent government at the time, don't go out and promise 500 more police officers in terms of your mandate on reducing crime. What you actually need is more child protection workers, more family violence workers, more health workers, more therapy workers, mm. and give the money and the resources to them because that's what's going to make a difference. But you still get, you know the same old rhetoric. Mm. We need more police because that's going to cut the crime rate. Well, unless you can actually get at the beginning of the process, uh, you're not going to cut the crime rate. Do you mind me asking, how's, how's Russell going now? He's good. Yeah, he's got a, a full-time job. He's living in the country in regional WA. He's got a partner and a baby. And uh, he's been going really well now for quite a few years since, yep. since his last release from prison. So it's a day-to-day process. You, mm. know, you know, it's one step forward, two steps back. 
And I think someone that's been there and been an addict is always living on a knife edge. Mm. But, you know, it, but he's managing it quite well. W- was it tough for you to sometimes come home, take your police officer hat off and your, and your dad hat on? Well, it's a, I think what I've said many times is when you're a police officer, you're a police officer. So I remember the, the night of the explosion when he got taken to Royal Perth Hospital, casualty, mm. uh, with quite severe burns. I went to see him and made a conscious decision not to go in to see him. And the reason I did that is because it could be construed by anybody, my, my troops or the media, that I'd briefed him on what he should say to the investigating detectives. Mm. So I waited nearly two days until that process had been done before I went to see him, and that was tough. You know, That was really yeah. tough. Yeah. Mm. Um, what's been the turning point for him to get his life back on track, do you think? Well, I think the turning point, I mean, he spent quite a bit of time in prison, and that, that's some, a sobering experience. Yeah. But I think also uh, he... Uh, got out of a circle of acquaintances by moving away from the Perth metropolitan area to yep. living in the region, regions and getting a job. So that was that was an important thing, yep. I think. Yeah. Just feeling empowered again. Yeah, just feeling yep. empowered and not being part of that, that circle. Mm. We'll get on to matters outside of policing, I promise, after the break. Carla Callahan okay. is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. My special guest is Carlo Callahan. Uh, Carlo, I promised that we'd leave the policing matters uh, to one side, but uh, in asking you now about your musical interests, yeah. uh, we're never too far away from it because <laughs> your, your band that you're in appropriately titles The Filth, the filth yeah. which is, I suppose, it, it's, am I right in thinking it's a term you hear perhaps more in the UK? Yeah, it's a, the it's filth. a, it's a UK term. Yeah. The, the crooks call the police the filth. Exactly, yeah. Um, so and it was our bass player who's an ex-UK police officer who came right. up with the idea. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> I thought it was cool. You sound like you should be a punk band if you called The Filth. Yeah, I think that was probably the... the um, the view it gave at the time, uh, we yeah. don't play much punk. <laughs> we have played a little bit of punk, but not a lot. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it was sounded good, and it sort of was taking, you know, really not taking us very seriously by yeah. saying something like that. Yeah, a few it raised a few eyebrows inside the police force. I can know, imagine so a lot of a lot of eyebrows. <laughs> you know, they just didn't know quite what to make of it. Yeah, um, tell us about how the band started. Anyway, what drew you towards it? Um, well, I think I'm just trying to remember how it actually started. Um, a couple of people that I knew inside the police played uh, music, and we were doing a show with the police pipe band, and they, you know, they sort of said, "Oh, it could be sort of neat if the police commissioner came and played a song with us," you know. So I did that, you know, one or two songs. I think we did it here at the um, at the Crown, and um, uh, after that, uh, we a couple of us got together and we started playing, and then we got invited to do a gig. And and it was actually one of those situations where someone said, "Look, you know, we've heard you've got a band. Can you come down and because pl- we only play for charity, we don't play yeah. for money." And uh, we thought we were going down to do three three songs or something at this event, and they said, "No, it's a black tie event, and you're the band for the whole night." <laughs> and I said to the other guys, "I said, man, we got to we got to come up with about uh, twenty or thirty three chord songs very quickly to get through the night, which is exactly what we did." <laughs> And the rest is history, really. It just went from strength to strength. People would ring and say, can you come to our charity event? Yep. Raise money here, raise money there. We enjoyed it. They got mm. the money. That was good, you know? Yeah. And, and, and what did you contribute to the band? Not much. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I play a little bit of guitar. And yep. um, I'm, not a, I'm not a great guitarist. I'm a self-taught guitarist. I didn't pick mm-hmm. up the guitar until I was 40. So, you know, it was quite late. Late bloomer. But uh, we actually worked with some kids at Calamunda High School to put on a... Uh, three nights playing only Pink Floyd songs. 
with the three chords of well, wouldn't that, get you too far that, 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 through that, their catalogue, would it? Yeah. And, and worse than that, we didn't have a keyboard player. So the guy said, well, you can't play Pink Floyd without synths. No. So uh, I had to learn how to play enough synthesizer to get through a three-night Pink Floyd set, which I did. Wow. Uh, it was good. You like a challenge, don't you? Oh, it's lovely. You know? yeah. and, and, you know, like now, now I play ukulele in the band as well and little things like that, Mando, because I just like to try something new all the time. Yeah. Like, so the the filth is still, still up and running? Yeah, we played... Uh, two weekends ago. Uh, that was quite fun, only for about 40 or 45 minutes, but mm. it's good fun. And I would say it's more of a project these days than a band because people can't come or they're busy. So mm. we've got a, a group of about 10. And mm. You only have to assemble five of them in one place yeah. to be able to put on a show. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like all the makings for a concept album. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've got a bit of time for it, what were the things that appealed to you about leaving the police force? You think, oh, good, I can spend more time doing this or that perhaps music was one of them what were the things that you were you were looking forward to investing more in well uh, we uh, i was running running a charity and uh, we were working in mongolia a fair mm. bit. so i've been to mongolia most years at least once for the last five or six so I yeah, I could tell us uh, tell us about that charity because i know um, that started what in about 2011 didn't yeah it? bright blue is a charity that raises money for uh, different projects to do with kids illnesses mm. and so we've got couple of Australian-based projects. We'd, wor- we'd um, worked on neuroblastoma research and funded some of that. Uh, we'd also done a bit around FASD in the Kimberley, you know, fetal alcohol spectrum mm-hmm. disorder, for those who don't know what that is, uh, in, in Fitzroy Crossing. And we had an overseas project working with um, burns. Kids have been seriously burnt in Mongolia. And uh, that's working with an Australian charity called Interplast. So we were paying for them to be able to go and do surgical work and training okay. over there. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, Mongolia of all places, yeah. how did you come to have a connection um, with Mongolia? One of the guys in the charity, his brother-in-law uh, works in Mongolia in mining and he raised this issue of, you know, why about 25% of all the kids in Mongolia get burnt to a stage where 25%. they 25%? Yeah, because they live a nomadic lifestyle. So they're pulling pots of water, stew, yep. Hot milk. It's a lot of scald type work. It, even even now, still twenty five percent. Yeah, it's very difficult, extraordinary. Very difficult to get uh, education out to nomadic people. You know, and not yeah. just, not so much city based people, but the people who are living nomadically in Mongolia. Yeah, mm. uh, you spent a bit of time there. I've been there about um, twelve times. Mm. Um, got a lot of friends over there now, and we we're planning on going back later this year. So that was one of the things I had on my horizon when I left work. So I'll spend more time doing yeah. that. What's it, what's it? What's it like there? It's a fabulous place. It's um, uh, you know, the city, the the main the main capital city, Ulaanbaatar, is quite is a bit sort of unplanned and uh, you know a bit ramshackle. But it's it's a modern city, but it's not well planned, so it's mm. very busy. It's a lot of congestion, a lot of pollution. But outside Mongolia is one of those places where you can go just about anywhere, mm. and um, it's just beautiful. There's mountains and rivers and lakes mm. and nomadic people everywhere, and you can. They say about Mongolia, it's one of the few countries in the world you can cross with not a penny in your pocket and just drop in with nomadic people and they'll look after you for the night and they'll feed you. Yeah. Mm. Um, back closer to home, it, mm. it, it seemed for a little while, just from you know from the outsider's perspective, you'd, you'd uh, finished up in your role with WA Police. You seem to be getting involved with um, you know some of the in, Indigenous issues playing yes. out in, in WA. Yeah. Um, that Twiggy Forest was also uh, involved in at the same time, yep. and I think some people suspect that there may be some sort of formal relationship developing there and a, and a role developing mm-hmm. out of that. Was that ever more than speculation? No. Well, I mean, I spoke to 
Twiggy and I spoke to a number of other people about ways that I could lend a hand because I had a lot of experience and yeah. uh, I knew a lot of people and I thought you know we could continue relationships like that. One of the things that got in the way of me being able to do that is a couple of years ago, um, my wife and I made a decision to uh, foster children. Mm. So we now have four boys living with us full time, and it you know as you take on more kids and you take on the issues that they bring to the family, it. Um, it becomes less possible to be flexible with those other things. Mm. So I decided in the end that I just wanted to focus on the mm. children that we were looking after. Yeah. Um, tell me about fostering. When, when did that come up as a conversation between yourself um, and your wife? Well, you know, I spent so much time as a police officer, uh, as a police commissioner, I should say, criticising parents for letting their kids run around the streets late at night and, you know, all sorts of issues with family violence and drug-affected families. That I said to my wife, I said, you know, we could actually lend a hand here. Yeah. And we went through the um, the qualification process for fostering with the DCP, Child Protection. And it took about nine months to get through it. And then not long after that, they called us and said, look, we've got two children we need to place. Can you take them on? So we mm. did, two boys. They're still with us after three years. Mm. And, and And then what tends to happen is you get a call saying, look, we've got short-term problems here. Can you care for this child? Can you care for that child? Uh, and now we're caring for four. You know, a couple of them have had difficulty settling into other homes, and so they've come to live with us, and that's yep. going quite well. Yeah. But I think it's uh, the difference you make to those kids' lives is incalculable, and also what you save the community in mm. them entering the justice system or you know entering a lifetime of uh, welfare support mm. is just also incalculable. Mm. So these things, I think, um, are among the most useful things I've ever done. Yeah. How how young are these kids that you're taking them? 10, 11, and two 13-year-olds, all boys at right. the moment. But, that's, a, uh, that's a tricky time of you know, life. We had a couple of others over last week. We took them away. I've got a place down south, so I went down there, and we've had other kids drift in and out over the years and a Sudanese refugee. So, you know, our house has always got kids in it. Yeah. You know, but it is, it's a big job. And, of course, you're giving up your retirement to sharing your house and time with children. And, you know, I love doing it, but it's not for everyone, I guess. No. Keeps you young, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm mixing with people that uh, I not that you're with. old. No, no. But so, <laughs> so, you know, I'm mixing with kid sport parents now. Yeah, uh, twenty yeah. years, sometimes thirty years younger than me, and uh, you know, going to kids assemblies and all that sort of thing. You know. Yeah, yeah. You've had a few, um, a few experiences uh, behind the microphone hosting yeah. radio programs yeah. on yeah. on on six PR. Yeah, uh, among a few different outlets. But uh, how do you how do you find that and and the interactions with members members of the public, do people still associate you with the uniform? Yeah, I think they do. I, I love it. I mean, I love doing talk back with 6PR. It's just been fabulous. I, I got a call and asked to do it. And I guess there's some sort of natural synergy with having so much time in the media as police mm. commissioner with being behind a microphone. Um, nearly all the people I've spoken to in Talkback Radio have been, you know, quite happy you know they haven't they haven't been critical or anything like that and i think they just enjoy talking to someone mm. they know the face of you know mm. because they're saying well that's carlo callahan we know what he looks like because we've seen him for so many years yep. and so that's worked quite well yeah mm. and and just lastly what's on your agenda going forward what do you what do you still want to do and achieve well look as i said I, we're, we're, we've got the children we're looking after they're with us till they're 18 so there's another for right. one of them there's another eight years of care and yep. you know other kids will come and go so we're go, we'll, we'll do that. Um, I'm building a house myself with a couple of friends down south, and that's proved to be a bigger challenge than we thought <laughs> it was ever going to be. But, you know, it's interesting. And so yeah. for me, it's just doing stuff, you know, keeping yep. active, keeping interested, and doing charity work as well. I do a lot of charity work, do yep. a lot of talks to people and yep. that sort of thing, work for the Fathering Project. 
So there's a whole raft of things I'm involved in. Plenty. Plenty. And just to put any speculation about a career in politics to bed, not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. No, I've got too many other things I want to do. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> Far more important things to do with your time. Carlo Callahan, thank you for, so much for coming in and, and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. Uh, and this one, as always, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.